Today's scripture comes from the Psalms, chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yes. Sorry, Daniel. User error. Hey, Redemption, how you doing? Good. Good to see you guys. Great to be back. Thank you for, uh, uh, well, I, everything went off without a hitch. I got no uh, panicked emails or anything. In fact, some people, you know, sent me texts after Josh and Cody preached and said, it's okay. Stay in Virginia. It's good. It's good. It was really good, though, uh, for them to be able to uh, lead, and uh, it's good to have them uh, be able to do that. A couple things before I get started. I'd love to dive right in, but there are a couple things I want to just acknowledge. First of all, uh, let me tell you, I, uh, before I say this, I know the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. I understand the difference, but I don't know how to talk about Memorial Day uh, without acknowledging uh, all the people who uh, have either served uh, in the military or who um, are currently serving or whose families are part of somebody who has served or is currently serving. I, that's the only way I know how to talk about Memorial Day, and I just want to acknowledge that, that uh, all of you who have served, who are serving, who are, are uh, families of somebody who has served, uh, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your service to our country. That's really important. I have, uh, my father served in World War II, uh, he, for three years, he was on a, a destroyer in the South Pacific, the USS Farragut. Uh, and I'll tell you, he didn't die from seeing action, but he saw a lot of action, and in a sense, he died a thousand times during that action, if you know what I mean. Uh, war is hell. He said that all the time. And, and so I appreciate that. He passed away just a year ago at the age of 94, still talking uh, about uh, being on that destroyer. Uh, the other person is uh, somebody really close to me, um, my very best friend growing up, and we have stayed very close over the years. He, he lives right now in San Diego with his wife. His name is R.C. Jennings. Uh, he graduated from college and spent 30 years in the Navy. He gave his life to uh, the Navy, and um, I got to have lunch with him on Friday, uh, and he has just retired, mandatory retirement after uh, 30 years. He served in Iraq. He served in the Gulf of Kuwait during the high times. Uh, uh, and more recently, uh, he, his tour was in Guantanamo. And so he's seen it all as well. And I just appreciate the sacrifice that he and his family have made too. So uh, again, for all of you who have been involved in that in any way, shape, or form, I just want to acknowledge that and say thank you for your service and for your sacrifice. Uh, the other thing, not quite as important as that, is that uh, this Wednesday night, uh, I am starting for five weeks on Wednesday night, a class in the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. And I will tell you that based on my experience in church, this might be the only time that you ever get to have a class on Esther, because we're probably never going to preach it from the front. 
It's not that it isn't an important book. It's just it, most churches never really get around to it. And one of the reasons, frankly, is because Esther's the only book in the Bible that never actually mentions the name of God. And yet the book is all about the providence and sovereignty of God. I will also tell you that for my money, it is probably the most entertaining book in the Bible. When you really get into this book, it is absolutely fantastic. It's also probably the most well-attested-to book in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway, in terms of history. Uh, and it's a magnificent study. It's a great story. And I know maybe you saw the VeggieTales movie on it. You still haven't really understood or experienced uh, Esther. Uh, the way we're doing it, usually on Wednesday night Bible studies, we go six to eight and we have a meal. But again, we're trying to save money for this move that's coming up to, into our new uh, property. So we're going to do it this time. We're going to do it 6.30 till about 7.45. Uh, no food. You can bring your own food in or you can eat before you come. We'll be set up with tables and everything. Everything so you can bring food in if you want, uh, but I, I think it's going to be a great time. So just like with the membership class, we would love for you to register your intent uh, on coming to these classes so that we know how to prepare with childcare and all of that stuff. So you can find that on our website and, and uh, register before Wednesday for us. Okay, so let's get into the Psalms. Uh, we're going to spend the next 12, 13 weeks. This is our summer series in the Psalms. Obviously, we're not going to do every single Psalm. There's 150 of them. And just to let you, a couple things to let you know right up front that, that I think are, could be really helpful. There are some Psalms that all redemption congregations naturally are going to do. We're all doing Psalm 1. We're all doing Psalm 23. We're all doing Psalm uh, 51. We're all doing Psalm 119. We're all doing Psalm 73, certainly. But from there, the, the congregations have been able to, we've been allowed to pick whatever Psalms that, that we want to do. And so, as you come to church on Sunday morning and hear us preach on the Psalms, you might also want to go to the websites of the other congregations and hear the other Psalms preached by our other pastors, our other lead pastors as well. I think that would be a great uh, resource to you as well. Uh, one other thing, I plan to introduce the Psalms this morning and then take us through Psalm 1. My introduction, uh, really, there's a lot of stuff that I have to leave out for the sake of time and, and other issues. Uh, and so I would like to direct you to a wonderful video. It's eight minutes and 59 seconds long that I think you should watch. It is fantastic, and it's a, it's a really helpful introduction into the Psalms. If you go to YouTube and, and put in the words in the search engine, put in the words Bible Project Psalms, and one of the first videos that pops up will be an eight-minute and 59-second uh, video on an introduction into the Psalms. It is absolutely magnificent. And everything that I don't have time to say this morning, they're going to say it and probably say it a lot better than I could. And so you could probably also go to Bible Project's um, website. So just Google it and, and you'll be able to find it. But I would really encourage you to watch this eight-minute and 59-second uh, video on an introduction called Bible Project Psalms, Okay. So let's get into it now. The Hebrew title, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is Telahim. And what that word means literally is songs of praise. Songs of praise. Now, the Psalms are songs, and we'll get into all of that. They're more than songs, but they are certainly songs. But what's interesting to me about that is that they are songs of praise, that's what's really interesting to me, because if you know anything about the Psalms, you know that almost half of the Psalms are what we call laments, or complaints, 
or imprecatory prayers. Uh, An imprecatory prayer is when you are asking God for judgment on something or someone else. And yet they are called songs of praise. I I think that's interesting. Almost half of them are God's people pouring out their frustrations, their doubts, and their concerns. Now that should hit us at a gut level because most of us like to put on our little happy face when we come to church and cover all that stuff up. And yet the, the Psalms, the biggest book in the Bible, deals directly with this stuff. And I think that, that, that they are songs of praise, even though a lot of them are laments and complaints and uh, imprecatory songs. I think this is indicative, clearly indicative of how grief and sadness and disappointment and, yes, even anger when brought to God, is actually a way to praise and worship him. It's actually a way to praise and worship God. Hear me. Lament is an appropriate response to the corruption in this world. Lament is an appropriate response to the fact that we live in a sinful, dark place. That is an appropriate response, and God knows that. And so we should bring it to him. And so God, being full of grace and truth and love and wisdom, he wants us to bring everything to him. So even when we bring our messes and our angst to him, it is a form of worship and praise because we're acknowledging him as God. It's a way to acknowledge him as God. So it is definitely a form of worship and praise. I think one of the greatest misunderstandings of our relationship with God is that we must be happy and content and successful Uh, and have our life together in order to, quote, properly praise and worship him. The Psalms take that notion and just throw it right under the bus. It's just not true. So, the Psalms are songs. In fact, uh, most people will tell you that the Psalms, the the organized, gathered book of Psalms, 150 of them, was actually the hymn book of the second temple, the, the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. It was their hymn book. It was what they would reach for every Sunday morning and sing. And some of these, these psalms were written specifically to be accompanied with music, and some were written specifically to not have any music uh, with them. You just sang them without uh, any sort of musical instrumentation. Uh, also, the psalms, though, are prayers as well. So they're songs, but they're also prayers. Every one of them is a prayer. Every one of them is, is communication with God. It's pouring out our hearts to God, whether it's a lament or a complaint or whether it's praise and thanksgiving, whether it's a recitation of, of the history of God's people or whether it's looking forward to Messiah and kingdom and salvation and deliverance. They are all prayers. I hear people all the time say, I don't know how to pray. I wish I knew how to pray. Read the Psalms. You can pray the Psalms. In fact, uh, one of the things that we really hope you will do in the midst of this series and after this series is you will start to pray the Psalms. They're prayers. So if you're not any good at praying, I understand that. I'm not so good at praying myself. Pray the Psalms. It's a great place to go. The Psalms are also considered in the Bible, there are different genres of literature And so the Psalms are considered part of the wisdom literature. So different genres of literature. There's historical narrative, there's law, 
There's uh, the prophets, that's a whole genre of literature. There's apocalyptic literature. There's also wisdom literature. Wisdom literature would be things like Ecclesiastes and Job and the Song of Solomon and Proverbs. The Psalms fit in with that. They're considered wisdom literature because even though they're songs of praise and they are prayers, they are also helpful to us in revealing to us the wisdom of God and how to live our lives. And so they're wisdom literature as well. The Psalms are also poetry. They're written as poetry. And so as poetry, Hebrew poetry, they would characteristically be filled, they are characteristically filled with narrative beauty as well as metaphor, simile, irony, hyperbole, personification, and even sarcasm. Maybe that's why I like the Psalms so much, because I'm a sarcastic kind of guy, and I appreciate that. And one of the most common themes that you're going to find in the Psalms, which I'm sure all of us can connect with in some way, is that the Psalms constantly wrestle with this notion that believers in God have between, uh, between fear and trust between faith and doubt. Amen? I believe in Jesus. That's the end of all my fear and doubt. Really? Well, that's cool. Just push the old Jesus button and everything's fine. Is that how it really works? No, 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 no. And so the Psalms are honest about this. They, they, they deal honestly with this wrestling, with this battle. And the Psalms help us to answer the age-old question. Why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? I hear people say all the time, you know, love is the universal language. Well, if love is the universal language, then suffering is the universal experience. Amen? And Jerry Sitzer, in his book, uh, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. By the way, if you would like, it's a classic book. It's wonderful. If you'd like to read that book, I've got copies of them in my car. I literally carry around copies of this book. I'd be happy to give you one for free. But he writes in his book, A Grace Disguised, he says that suffering is both universal and unique. It's universal in the sense that all of us suffer, but it's unique in the sense that every one of us has a different way in which we are suffering, in which we are battling. And, and, and every one of us has a story of suffering. Every one of us has, has questions about suffering, whether it's our suffering or somebody else's suffering or the world's suffering, whatever it is. And so one of the answers to this, by the way, there's many answers to this question. They all eventually go back to sin, by the way, but they're manifest in different ways. And one of the answers to the suffering question is this. Why is there suffering? So that you and I might seek God and pray to him. That's why. Because if there wasn't any suffering or hurt or challenges, would we ever seek God? The answer is no. I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. And here is an experience that I have never had as a pastor and I've never had any of my pastor friends tell me that they've had this experience, and I don't expect that I will ever have this experience either. I like to stand out on 42nd Street and say hello to people as they walk in, and very often new people in the church will walk up to me and talk to me. I have never, never had anybody walk up to me and say, you know, never been to church before, never came to church, my first time at church. Um, and what, what happened was... Um, I have more money than I could ever possibly need or want or use. 
All of my relationships are perfect. Everybody treats me the way I expect them to, be, to, them to treat me. I have no problems. I'm not suffering in any way. Uh, I, I have no physical ailments whatsoever. I think the world is just perfect and doing fine, and, and everything is beautiful. I thought, I ought to go to church. I got to go to God. That has never happened. Every person who walks in here has got a story. Every person who walks in here is dealing with someone. Someone, yeah, okay, Freudian slip. Something. Every person who walks in here, me too, all of us, we wouldn't seek God. There would be little recognition of need. Uh, John Calvin, the, the great reformer, wrote this. When humbled by affliction and suffering, we turn to God for his power, which alone allows us to stand under the weight of those afflictions. Now, this is not the only answer to suffering. There are going to be others during this series, but it gets us started. Okay? So the Psalms are songs, they are prayers, and they're poems, but they are still even much more than that. They are revelatory They tell us about God, and they tell us about humanity. They tell us very explicitly about the heart of God and the nature of God, and very explicitly about the heart of man, the heart of humanity, and the nature of humanity. The Psalms tell us who God is and who we are. The Psalms are also historical and instructional. They're historical and instructional. So the Psalms teach us our heritage as the people of God, And they give us insight as well. And the Psalms acknowledge every emotion and every thought that we humans have. And this may be the most important thing about the Psalms. They acknowledge every emotion and every thought we've ever had, and they do not cower from those emotions and thoughts. The Psalms lean into this. Psalms are honest about our feelings. Uh, The Psalms are quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. And probably because there's 150 of them, but also probably because there's so much history and insight to them as well. And they range in length, the Psalms do. Uh, You heard Aaron this morning say, chapter 1, that's Psalm 1, six verses. They range in length from two verses, that's Psalm 117. That's a tweet, okay? (laughs) To Psalm 119, which is 176 verses long. You you take out the Gospels and the book of Acts, and Psalm 119 at 176 verses is longer than more than half of the New Testament books. It's it's kind of a marathon to read it, but it is absolutely magnificent. We're going to do Psalm 119. It is absolutely spectacular. Uh, One author wrote, I remember reading this a while back, one author wrote that a person could spend their entire life reading and studying Psalm 119, and it would not be a wasted life. It would not be a wasted life. It's a fantastic psalm. And while the psalms do look back and teach us about our history, and they also are appropriate for helping us to understand how to apply our walk with God to our lives today, ultimately the psalms look forward to Messiah, to deliverance, to restoration, and to the kingdom. The kingdom of God. All the Psalms point to Jesus and point to the gospel. They point to God's shalom. And so ultimately, the Psalms are hopeful. If there was one word that I would use to describe the Psalms, I would say 
hope. There's genuine hope there. Old Testament scholar R.K. Harrison writes this about the Psalms. Israel believed that all of life was related to God by covenant. This includes home, relationships, work, and worship. Now that sounds a lot like our mantra at Redemption Church. All of life is all for Jesus, right? Okay. He goes on to write this then. The Psalms, therefore, are humanity's release to God of the deepest emotions of life, praise, love, and joy, as well as sadness, disappointment, anger, and doubt. So the Psalms are a magnificent combination of understanding and emotion. It's, it's where cognitive meets affective. It's the perfect blend of the two. One pastor who's a friend of mine uh, said this once. He said, the minute I start to suffer, I tend to lose my theology. That ought not to be. The minute I start to suffer, I begin to forget about God's promises and what God has told me. That ought not to be. Well, the Psalms are the answer to this quandary. The Psalms allow us to express our deepest angst while still pointing us to the reality and hope of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I have, I have three goals in the Psalms for this summer series that I want to get us to. I think we have a slide on this uh, as well, uh, Becky. Three goals. Um, number one, the Psalms are filled with great information. But if we just dump a bunch of information on you, really, this is just an exercise in futility. The information is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but what we're really looking for is, is formation and transformation. We want to go deep with these things, and we want you to go deep with these things. So formation, not just information. Number two, we really should lean into the fact that the Psalms help us to understand the nature and heart of God and the nature and heart of humanity. And we should see that difference and how important that is and how, that, how we relate to that. And so we want to get into that. And then, number three, how do the Psalms ultimately point us to the gospel, to Messiah, to kingdom? And we're going we're gonna to look very hard at that every single week. And so let me go back now and just reread Psalm 1, and we'll spend the rest of our time talking uh, about Psalm 1 and, and the implications and what it's teaching us and how we dive into it. So here's Psalm 1. It's not accredited to anyone. It's considered an anonymous psalm, though many scholars think King David probably wrote this one. He wrote a lot of the psalms. So here's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. Now look at, again, the poetic nature of how this is built. Look at that. Blessed is the one who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor stands with sinners, nor sits with Scott. That's a, that's a beautiful and poetic way of saying that all of your life should be devoted to something other than the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. It's, it's a way of saying this is about your whole life here. So well, how is a person then blessed? Well, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He, the blessed one who meditates on God's law day and night, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. 
In all that he does, he prospers. Verse 4, though, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Isn't it interesting? Verses 3 and 4, which is showing the contrast of the result of walking uh, uh, under the tutelage of God's word and the one who is wicked. You see the contrast? Those are, those are illustrated to us with agricultural metaphors. Again, I, I just, I love the beauty. Uh, this psalmist is painting all these word pictures for us to help us to understand the heart of God. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here's your big idea. Trees, not pipes. Trees, now some of you are like, what? I was in Wisconsin for a week. It kind of freaks you out a little bit, okay? So you're going to get it in a few minutes. Don't worry. We'll get it. We'll get it in just a few minutes, okay? So Psalm 1 introduces the Psalms to us, along with Psalm 2. We'll get to that next week. But it serves as an introduction and a preface to the entire Psalter. A lot of people call the book of Psalms the Psalter, okay? But not only that, Psalm 1 acts in just six verses. Psalm 1 acts as an efficient and comprehensive synopsis of all of Scripture. All of it. You can find the major theme of Scripture right here in Psalm 1 in these six verses. And it does so with a clear and compelling contrast that is a major theme throughout the Bible. If you honestly read the Bible, you can't miss this major theme. And here's the theme. The reality is that there is no third way out there to be delivered from, God, from evil by God other than through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. That salvation and deliverance lies with God and God alone. That he is the king and it is his kingdom and then there are the wicked and the scoffers and the sinners and the mockers. There's no third way. There's no way to mix a little of this and mix a little of that. Here you go. There's no way of having a wicked sinful life but kind of having salvation in your hip pocket. There's no way to do that. There's no third way. There's no alternative way. There's either Jesus or there's no Jesus. There's life or there's death. There's light and there's darkness. There's good and there's wicked. There's God and then there's self. The worship of self, which is expressed in a multitude of ways, but ultimately it's you taking the place of God, kicking him off his throne and saying, I'm in charge here. In other words, there are two categories of people in the world. Those who believe in God and walk in his counsel and those who reject God and therefore are headed for the eternal consequences of their sin. That's what verse 6 says right there. But the way of the wicked will perish. That is a verse of ultimate judgment on the judgment day when Jesus comes again. And so there is no, what, what I would call or what maybe um, one author would call, there is no such thing as an almost gospel. So what is an almost gospel? I would propose to you that an almost gospel is the gospel that is practiced by the vast majority of people who are actually in evangelical churches every week. An almost gospel kind of goes like this. And there's various um, manifestations of it, but it kind of looks like this. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I acknowledge Jesus as, as God. Oh yeah, I believe that he lived and died and was crucified. And yes, I even embrace the resurrection. And, and yeah, about God's word, um, yeah, I, I believe that, that 
yeah, I believe that God, I believe the Bible contains God's word, but it's, but I don't know, the, I don't know about, I don't know that it, the whole thing is really God's word. Now it starts to break down. Now you can see where it begins to break down, okay? Yeah, so I, I think that there's really, that, that most of it is pretty accurate and, and really helpful, uh, but there are some things in there that I think are outdated, and there are some things in there that aren't true for me, and there are some things in there that are cert- certainly not we shouldn't talk about them today in our culture today because they no longer apply. Okay, ultimately, ultimately what you're now saying is Jesus isn't my Lord. Jesus isn't my master. I am not submitting everything to him. It sounds good. I like it. I like the way church makes me feel most of the time. I kind of like some of the people there. They have pretty good coffee most of the time. I go there, but I don't really, really believe it. One author calls people like that functional atheists. Jesus! And then reality. And here's the reality. Ultimately, here's the reality of the, ulti- ulti- uh, of the almost gospel. Ultimately, you decide what's right. You decide what's best. You are the final arbiter of what's acceptable and what is not acceptable. I have this conversation all the time. It's either true or it isn't. There's no halfway. There's no third way. There's no alternative way. There is no almost gospel. So the psalmist writes in verse 1, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or sinners or scoffers. Again, it's a word picture. And here's the word picture that the author is painting. Although this person is blessed, this person also swims upstream against the common cultural mores and wisdom that's out there in the public sphere, that's out there in the marketplace. You are swimming upstream. You are going against the tide, against the current. You are being splattered with resistance if you are a blessed person who delights in the law of God. Being a person of God is always a challenge. You don't hear that in in a lot of churches. They don't want to tell you that, but that's true. Being a person of God is always a challenge. There's going to be trials and suffering and persecution. And if we're not purposeful and careful in our walk with God, it is so easy without us even noticing to get swept up in the current of all of this wicked, sinful scorning, scoffing stuff. It's so easy. Many of you, have, I'm sure, have experienced this if you've ever gone to uh, the beach, especially uh, the Pacific Ocean. My brother has a, has a condominium in Carlsbad, right on the beach. You, you, you walk out of his condominium, you cross the train tracks there, and you're right there just north of the, of the I'm sorry, not Carlsbad, San Clemente. What am I saying? San Clemente. You're just north of the San Clemente Pier. It's magnificent. And Walter, if you're listening, we haven't been invited for two years, so get on that. Anyway, um, it, it's absolutely magnificent. So you, you, you lug all your stuff out there, the umbrella and the folding chairs and the, and the, and the towels and the beach balls and the smash ball and the volleyball and everything out there. And, and then you go into the water. And you're out in the water and you're frolicking for, for, boy, I really butchered that word. You're playing in the water for 30 minutes, Okay. And then you turn around and you look back at the beach and you're like, hey, where's my stuff? Where are my people? 
Well, nobody's taken your stuff or your people. The, the problem is, is that the current of the Pacific Ocean, without you noticing, has moved you 300 yards to the north. You didn't even realize, I'm halfway to Dana Point. And you didn't even realize it. That's what happens if you're not purposeful about your walk with God. The world just sweeps you up and sweeps you away. And, and so people say, all right, so how is somebody blessed then if this is hard? That doesn't square with my idea of blessed. That's right. It's because you don't have a biblical and godly understanding of what blessed is. Have you ever read the Beatitudes? Seriously. Yeah, sure, I've read those. Seriously, have you read them? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. See, our idea of what blessed is and God's idea of what blessed is are two different things. Blessing doesn't come from our circumstances. Blessing comes from our identity, who we are in Christ, that we are identified with God's people and God's word, God's, God's guardian, his, his law, which is expressed in Jesus Christ. So how is somebody blessed then? Well, there's three ways, and they're all true. One, the person who's blessed can live a life that's free of anxiety because you are rooted in God's word. You don't have to worry about it. You, you've heard the old saying that a, a liar lives his whole life looking over his shoulder and waiting for the other shoe to drop and having to figure out how to lie to cover up his lies, right? Well, the one who's blessed is who's one who's rooted in God's word, walking with God. You never have to look over your shoulder. You never have to wait for the other shoe to drop. And, and you are blessed. It's not necessarily a life of fantastic material wealth, although there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is your material wealth can vanish just like that. And suddenly you're not blessed anymore. So blessing doesn't come from material wealth. But you are blessed because it is a life of spiritual wealth that goes on forever, bringing peace and hope. Second of all, the one who's blessed is also a blessing to others. You are blessed by God. God shows you favor in whatever ways. He's, he's given you resources. He's given you wealth. He's given you time. He's given you ability and giftedness and talent. And the idea of somebody who's blessed is not to hoard the blessing the way Israel often did as a nation, but rather you're to take that blessing and then pour it outwards on others. So the one who is blessed also lives a life of blessing to others with whatever you've been blessed with, whatever it is that God has blessed you with. And then third, the one who is blessed experiences shalom. Now, I mentioned that word er earlier. It's that, that Hebrew word that we translate as peace, but it's so much deeper than that. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of hard to, to describe and define fully Entire books have been written on the Hebrew word shalom. Just briefly, I would say this is the basics of it. It is peace, but it is God's peace that is brought about by our connectedness to him, which then turns us into an outward focus towards others. That's shalom. And when you start to have everybody living in connection with God, and turning us into an outward-focused community, we begin to experience this created order shalom that God has intended for us from the very beginning, that Jesus brings back to us and will bring again in its completion when he comes again. It's, it's Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. 
Look not only to your own interests. It's okay to look at your own interests, but don't look only at your own interests. Look also to the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. There's the connectedness to God, which then humbles us and turns us outward towards others. It's essentially, it's essentially Redemption Church's mantra, again, of being gospel-centered and outward-focused. And this is all in contrast to walking with the wicked, of being under the counsel and tutelage of the wicked. You want a definition of the wicked? Let's look at what Paul says. Here's, here's Paul's definition of wicked in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Paul writes this, And since they, those who have turned against God, those who have decided to disorder God's created order, those who are practicing wickedness, even though they don't think so. They will tell you, I'm not practicing wickedness. This is who I am. This is my nature. This is, this is all good. They don't even know that they're being wicked. Paul says it, but since they, the wicked, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32 is the clincher, I think. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who are practicing them. So they're not only doing them, but they're, they're out there cheering others on as they do them. You must do this. This is how you ought to live your life, in rebellion to God. That's the good life. Cast off the shackles of God. That is the good life. That's the person who cheers the wicked on while being wicked. Verse 1 also says scoffers. It's such an interesting word. Literally, it's those who puff out their chest in conceit and mock God and others. You know, it's funny to me, being in the church for so long, uh, those of us who believe in God often act like this, 21st century right now, this is the only era in history in which people haven't believed in God and at times they're kind of rude about it. Like, we're the only ones this has ever happened to. Like those early first and second century Christians who were eaten by lions and put up in flames. That wasn't rude, apparently. That wasn't tough stuff, okay? Listen, there have been scoffers and mockers and disdainers and doubters for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus told us this would happen. Jesus told us. So look, you're going to be with me. You need to remember that, that, a, that a slave is not better than his master, and if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And a big part of this fiery trial is those who scorn and mock God in our faith. And I think it's really helpful to also remember that Peter also says that they, the scorners and mark, uh, mockers, they're surprised when we don't join them in their ways. Again, from chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he writes, with respect to this, they, the mockers and the scoffers, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, verse 2, somebody who's not walking in the counsel of the wicked or the sinners 
or, or the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That word delight literally means pleasure. Pleasure. One who gets pleasure from an ongoing desire and commitment to God's word. In other words, this is not a passing fancy. This is not just a phase. This is an existential desire to be filled with wisdom, instruction, and guidance from God. It's Psalm 119, verse 93. I will never forget your precepts or your instructions, for by them you have rejuvenated me. God rejuvenates us through his word. And this leads perfectly into an understanding of the comprehensive meaning and depth of the word law that he uses there, that the child of God finds his or her delight in. The law of the Lord is not rules and regulations, but rather life and light and instruction and wisdom. It is God's word, his logos in the Greek. And listen carefully to this. This includes... God's admonition, counsel, caution, power, and encouragement in both general and specific life choices, lifestyles, seasons of life, and worldview. That's how comprehensive this is. That's how full this is. And on this, the person of God meditates day and night. This is a fascinating word again to me. I love word studies, sorry. It's the geek in me. I know you're like, you're really geeky anyway, but yeah, I got it. This word literally means to ponder and mutter. Now, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. In the 60s and 70s, the definition of to meditate was to empty your mind of everything, which I think is actually impossible to do unless you're a man, but I, 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 I don't know. But this word here means that you're going to put something in your mind and you're going to think about it. You're going to chew on it. You're going to, you're, going to, you're going to ponder it. You're going to mutter it. You're going to recite it. You're going to ruminate on it. So it's the picture of the person who no matter what he or she is doing is thinking about, reciting, praying about, and ruminating on God's word. And I love that word ruminating. That's a biblical word too. To ruminate actually refers to what a cow does with their cud. Just chews on it over and over and over for hours. The person who's blessed delights to chew on God's word over and over and over. So there's a clear contrast between verses 1 and 2. The person who's engaged with God and the person who's not engaged. Clear contrast. There's no in-between. And then verse 3 is the result of walking in God's counsel. This is so important. This is a picture. Verse 3, it's this tree. It's a metaphor It's a picture of a tree in a very dry and harsh climate. The tree would be the child of God, would be God's person, standing in a dry and harsh climate. The darkness and the corruption and the sin of this evil generation, as Paul would say in the New Testament, of the world. It's us, here you go, not separating ourselves from the world, running from the world, but standing in the midst of this corruption. But as we are standing in the midst of this corruption, we are nevertheless thriving. While the rest of the world, we are thriving. We are the light because we have a foundational deep source of water. And the water is God's word and his power and his love. Do you see the picture there that is being painted for us? And here's the tree and the pipe thing. Now, you all know what a pipe does with water, right? 
it transmits the water, right? <sighs> Too basic for most of you, I see. Come on, get on with it, Frank. Okay. But the water never transforms the pipe, right? The, the water's going through the pipe, the pipe's transmitting it, but the pipe doesn't suddenly become a butterfly because of the water, right? There's no transformation, there's no change, there's no metamorphosis. You see where this is going now. The tree, however, reaches its roots down into the source, the life-giving source of the water, God's word. And the tree then is transformed by the water. The tree not only transmits the water, but it transforms the water. And that water becomes fruit. And who is the fruit for? It's to bless everybody else. Do you see that picture? The blessed one is the one who is being transformed by delighting in God's word so that there is fruit in our lives so that we can begin to be a blessing to others. So the tree does not exist and is not transformed. It does not not thrive just for itself, but is rather living as a benefit to others. Others are blessed by the tree. That's the picture of a gospel-centered, outward-focused circumstance. That's the picture of Jesus. It's a picture of shalom. And, and verses 4 and 5 are the result of walking in the counsel of the wicked. You become chaff. Become chaff, which is really, you end up on the threshing room floor and the wind blows you away. There's, there's a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached. Many of you know the sermon. Probably the most famous sermon in American church history. The title of the sermon is Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, somebody quipped a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about this. They said, you know, if that sermon was preached today, the title of the sermon would be God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. Amen? So Jonathan Edwards is preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. How many of you have ever read this sermon? It's magnificent. Yeah, I figured. You guys. <laughs> uh, it's, it's absolutely magnificent. But here's what, here's what he writes. And, and I have the quote uh, on a slide too. Here's what he said. Here's not what he wrote. Here's what he preached, okay? You think my preaching is tough. Listen to this. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, in other words, his patience with us, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. And he's holding back. Otherwise, it would come like a whirlwind and you would be like chaff on the summer threshing floor. And it is interesting to me that verses 3 and 4, the results of, of the God person and the wicked are agricultural similes. And here's what the author of the psalm is saying, you cannot sow and grow what you do not nurture and tend. I, I am, again, fascinated by the number of people that want to have this magnificent spiritual life in God that never give God the time of day. And they're angry that God isn't doing something for them. Well, you're never going to sow and grow what you don't nurture and tend to and care for. It's Galatians. It's, again, it's Paul. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Paul writes, do not be deceived. By the way, that verb deceive, deceive there is in the first person. Literally, it's do not deceive yourself. Who's our favorite person to deceive in the whole world? Us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's Paul's encouragement to those of us who are like, I've been doing this for a really long time and nothing seems to be happening. He's saying, don't worry, hang in there, man. Ultimately, God is in charge. And all of this comes from God, verse 6 says, and it's all about God. As I close, as I wrap, I want to take us back to verse 2. And his delight is in the law of God, and on it he meditates day and night. That, that law of God, it's the word of God. Listen to the Gospel of John, the first 14 verses, and you can see where John got this, okay? In the beginning was the word, the logos, the word of God. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Everything was made. Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Greek there is literally, the darkness cannot comprehend the light, and so it runs from the light. That's literally the picture that John is painting there. Light comes, darkness can't understand it, can't comprehend it, and so it runs. It runs from the light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This would be John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the Greeks, logos, word, was everything. It meant message, it meant life, it meant wisdom. John was writing to a primarily Greek uh, audience. But also for the Jews, Logos was everything. It was God's word. It was, it was his guardian. It was his instruction. And it was his wisdom. And I want you to think about this. Here's what John is telling us. This is the incarnation, the humanification of word, of Logos. This is the incarnation of grace and truth. This is the incarnation of Shalom. It came in Jesus. And he's going to come again. And it transcends all races and all nations and all cultures. And so verse 2 says, on God's logos, on God's word, on Jesus, we meditate day and night. That's the gospel. Let me pray. We'll have our time of response. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we just pray that you would continue to draw us to you. Draw us to your son. Draw us to your word. For in it we find light. We find life. We find our guardian. We find our instruction. And we find our wisdom. Help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.